Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast where I unfold, with the help of my amazing guests from across the world, how sustainability practices are integrated into business operations in various industries. My name is Anna. I am an environmentalist, sustainability consultant, and the host of this show. Today, with Dr. Kumar Ayer, a professional driving sustainable business practices from strategy to innovation to delivering growth in one of the Indian organizations, a part of 900 million US, global, US dollars global leader in the Indian market. We're discussing the principles of sustainable business practice, ESG and their role today, and the concept of quadruple bottom line and its relevance to society as it exists today. You're already familiar, probably, with the triple bottom line, which means people, planet, profit. The concept has led to the development of ESG criteria that we discussed in one of our our previous episodes, for the evaluation of enterprise, which also acts as guidelines for sustainable investing. The Sustainable Development Goals, which were released by the United Nations in uh, 2015, are a further extension of the triple bottom line and has provided benchmarks for countries and enterprises for ensuring a sustainable future. The quadruple bottom line introduces one more factor, which one you will learn in a second. So prepare yourself for a highly inspirational, intellectual and a very interesting interview. I'm honored to have Dr. Kumar with us today. Can't wait to start. But before we do, you can use this moment to subscribe to the podcast to always be up to date or even one step forward with the sustainability news across countries and industries. All right, ready? Let's dive right into it. Hi, Kumar. Thank you so much for joining me today at Sustainability Explored. I really appreciate the time that you're spending with me today on this interview. Uh, I would like you to introduce yourself a little bit for the listeners before we start. And from there, we will discuss the quadruple bottom line uh, and what it means for us as a humanity today. So please, the stage is yours. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for the invite. My name is uh, Dr. Kumar Ayer. I am a steel industry professional. I have been in the steel industry for the last 27 years or so. Prior to that, I mean, I have a metallurgical engineering degree, uh, both at the bachelor's level and at the doctorate level. I have been working in some of the most uh, polluting industries on this planet. But along the way, I developed a passion for sustainability. And in my last assignment, I was actually heading the sustainability. And that's when I explored some of these uh, hidden facets of sustainability, so to speak, where it has become fashionable to quote sustainability, while actually not adhering to every word that is spelled out. And uh, It has become a matter of convenience more than believing in sustainability, actually. That's right. It's like uh, we are doing it for the world rather than doing it because we believe in it. And that's what prompted me to come up with this concept called the quadruple bottom line. 
somewhere along the way, I realized that people have stopped listening to their conscience. Right. We know, like the the concept that is more um, on the run is a triple bottom line, which stands for social, environmental, and economic. Or in some resources, it is called financial. I came across your article on LinkedIn, article introducing the concept of quadruple bottom line. Could you expand on this? What is the fourth element that you think is important to be to introduce? Yes. As you rightly said, the triple bottom line talks about profits, people, and planet. So the three Ps, so to speak. The concept in itself is very strong, it's very powerful, but it calls for a lot of self-regulation. And given human nature, it's very difficult for a person to self-regulate. I would like to quote something that I read once. Uh, this was an article by, uh, this is in the book by Professor Clayton Christensen. He talked about something called as the personal moral line. So everyone has a certain code of conduct, a belief in principles or ethics, but that particular code of conduct is something which is inviolate. Uh, what I mean by that is you stick to that 100%. It's not 98% or 95% because over time, your 98 or 95% will soon become 50%. And that is what is happening to the world today. The triple bottom line is fine, but it implies that everyone is principled. And that is something which we know for a fact is a myth. Every single action that is most of us are involved in most of the actions i would not say every single action but most of our actions are driven by a profit motive there is some self-serving reason for us to get involved in that activity i would like to call it the greed motive so this greed is what has brought us to where we are today and i believe that unless we introduce and include this fourth P in the discussion, which is principles, the three P's are incomplete. So the four P's, the quadruple bottom line, which I talk about, will talk about people, profit, and planet, along with principles, which is the fourth bottom line. Mm -hmm. How do you think it is possible to introduce, introduce, implement, and maybe even enforce principles globally? It, it's very simple. Actually, implementing this is very simple. It's not as difficult as, you, uh, as people think it is. Because we are in the digital age. It's either one or zero. Yeah. There is no 0.5 in anything connected with digital. There is a gate, it's go or no go. Similarly, in life, it's either black, or it's white, there is no gray. If you can get your mind, your brain, to believe in zero and one as the defining block for all your digital activities, why can you not train your brain to think in terms of black and white? It's very difficult because we are so accustomed to walking on the gray. It was very difficult for people of my generation, at least, to accept 
and embrace the digital age. Because we're so used to doing things by our own hands. But today we could do it. So if you can do that, you can also do this. It's only a question of conditioning your brain to accept that what's wrong is wrong. Uh, I go back to a, something that I read long back. Uh, we have a mythical tale in India called Ramayana. It's a very popular myth which talks about this ideal human being. And there is a line from that myth mythical novel or story which actually led me to this theory which I'm talking about, the quadruple bottom line. And the line says, there is no wrong way to do the right thing. Like they say, the ends justify the means. The ends can never justify the means. So, as I said, there is no wrong way to do the right thing. And if you can follow that maxim in life, implementing this is very easy. Because nobody can police a conscience. But it's very subjective. How do I know what, what I do is right only in my opinion? In someone else is going to see whatever I'm doing, my action, through his own prism and take my action completely differently. My question, I guess, like coming back to your, to your thought about greed being a driver, how can this greed driver be replaced by what? It's all a question of how much do you need? If you look at why we are all living today, why we are working, why we do the things we do, it is to have a decent living. It is to quote-unquote, make some money, but how much? That is the question. I mean, we go into business, we go into any activity, even if it's a non-profit or even if it's government. We go into it so that at the end of the day, we balance the balance sheet, the financial balance sheet. Nobody goes into business for making a loss. I would not get into an activity where I have to put money into it indefinitely without returns. So profit itself is not a bad word because profit is the driver which will keep economy going. What is bad is how much profit. That is what I mean by greed. If you are creating a situation where a lot of the stakeholders in the system are being marginalized, their aspirations are not being met. Obviously, you are being overcome by the forces of greed. If you look at any system, there, the stakeholders in any system can be broadly classified under four heads. Those that you are dependent on, those that you depend on, the third is yourself, and fourth is the environment or the society or the government. If in your transactions, one of these four or two of these four, or even if one or two of these are overly favored over the others, then that system by its very nature is not sustainable. So when you apply the quadruple bottom line to that system and weigh the effects on the various stakeholders, you will 
self-determine whether you are in compliance or not. So it is, it's not subjective. It can be made as objective and as granular as you want it to be. Uh, I have done this exercise with a few organizations and we have been able to break down the granularity down to the finest detail. Can you so, tell uh, more about the examples, real life examples of how you, how you did it? Again, it's a question of having a will. There is this organization that we are working with. I mean, I'm working with right now. And what we did was we sat down and we looked at who are the stakeholders in that particular business. We said one of them was those who depend on us are our customers because we are providing them a service. So our customers depend on us because they pay us. We depend on our either technology providers or our employees or any other agency which is doing a service for us. And the third was the group of individuals who are driving the organization, the owners. And finally, society. So we sat down and we broke down what were the expectations of each of these set of stakeholders. Uh, once we broke it down, then we sat down and applied the SMART acronym to those aspirations. And only those aspirations which were found to be SMART would then go to the next stage, which was try and understand why are these aspirations important. Once we got the why out of, I mean, noted down, we then said, how are we going to achieve these aspirations? And when we went through the exercise, even before we got to this stage, we realized that we were actually weaving a very intricate spider web because these aspirations were not uh, linear. One set of aspirations were heavily dependent on another set, and there was a lot of crisscross happening even between the aspirations of a single stakeholder and between those of different groups of stakeholders. So once the how was defined, that actually translated into a broad strategy on how we are going to go ahead with the business. The next step to that was to put a timeline. When? By when are we going to achieve these aspirations? And once the when was defined, the final uh, metric was who would do it. So we started putting names or we started putting departments against each activity. And what happened at the end was we had this template, which was a live document, and which we could extend for a year, three years, five years, 10 years. And what happened was we had the timeline which said we knew what we had to target every year. And because we had people's names against it, we also had so-called KPIs for departments in place. So it was specific and measurable. And it was very easy for the individuals to know exactly what is expected from them in the time frame. And by ensuring that in all this, 
because one of the aspirational needs of the employees is that their owners should walk the talk. It came out loud and clear because the owners set the tone for how the organization behaves. So for the first time, there were KPIs which were ascribed to the promoter and to the board of directors, which till date we don't see. It's one directional flow. The board decides or the directors decide and then it flows down through the organization. In this case, there was a reverse flow where the need of the organization was communicated to the board and the, the board was made answerable for activities which the employees were expected to do. The board was made accountable so that they said, if you are doing this, we will do this. If you don't do this, I'm sorry, but you can't force us to do this. That's how uh, the principles actually got into the system. Because the board cannot, in all conscience, come and say, it's okay for me to lie, but I expect you to be honest. So this actually showed them a mirror. And at the end of the exercise, there was a lot more transparency. There was a lot more clarity. And the business actually realized that it's okay for us to make a slightly lower profit as long as we're doing the right thing. We're not damaging the environment. Uh, one of the targets which they had was to become energy neutral, zero solid waste, zero liquid waste. A lot of such minute details got put into it. These responsibilities were actually earmarked to individuals within the organization. Mm -hmm. So we could ensure that all four stakeholder families were in equilibrium. Right. Which industry sector was it? This was actually done for someone in the manufacturing sector. Okay, because zero solid yeah. waste is quite something. <laughs> yes, uh, they, see, it's not to be achieved in 2020, but we had a plan that by 2023, they would be zero solid waste. Because mm -hmm. it gave them a clear three years to find out a way for utilizing what today they called as waste. Right. They had to look for applications. It promoted, uh, see, what it does when you take this approach is it promotes a lot of innovation. It makes people think. They challenge the status quo. They have actually come up with contests within the organization on who will come up with means of tackling these wastes. There was a time frame. It's not, it's not a very uh, tight time frame, but it's not very loose either. We had a definite plan that within the next four years, this organization is going to achieve these metrics. And all this was done by consensus. It was not like a group of individuals sat down and put these, put these timelines. These, all these timelines were arrived on based on discussion and agreement. Right. I guess part of the success of this program will be or like mapping the stakeholders and setting up the KPIs is because you set measurable indexes. How is it, do you think, different from ESG's metrics and which deficiencies do you see with ESG approach? ESG as a concept is very good. I mean, it's the need of the hour. I mean, the amount of investing 
entities who are following ESG is increasing on a daily basis. But what is happening is, which I believe is the inherent problem with ESG, is that there is no accountability. Just as you have a financial balance sheet, do you have a social balance sheet? Do you have an employee balance sheet? One that tell, talks about the health of your employees. We all know that the employees are under severe strain. Have you mapped it? What percentage of your employees are happy? What percentage of your employees are with you because they want to be with you? And what percentage is with you because they have to be with you? What are their grievances? How many of your employee satisfaction surveys, if at all organizations carry it, those are realistic? You put out a sustainability report. A lot of organizations today are putting out sustainability reports. Are those sustainability reports audited? Are we really green? We are taking them for at face value. What is happening is that when you look at an organization from the ESG metric, you have to talk of the extended organization. You can't talk of only the entity in itself. If I take a multinational corporation, let's say one that exists in all continents, do you have one set of company standards across the globe or are you adopting different standards in different countries? If you do not have a single standard, how are you ESG compliant? You may be ESG compliant in, say, Europe, but in Asia you're not because the standards are lax. Are you moving polluting products from Europe to Asia because it's allowed to be made there? Then you're not ESG compliant because your social values are short. You're not treating your employees the same everywhere. I was reading just the other day that McDonald's in Denmark gives their employees six weeks paid vacation, one year paid paternity leave, because the laws of the country say that. But does McDonald's follow that globally? No organization does. Then how can you say I am ESG compliant in Europe, but I am not ESG compliant in Asia, yet I am an ESG compliant organization? Another example which I can give for this, and when, what I mean by an extended organization, is that today, to trim costs, a lot of companies have started subcontracting. They have vendors who are providing services. You may be highly ethical. Are your vendors equally ethical? You have a certain set of standards which you are following very religiously for your employees. Do your vendors follow the same? Your profit motive is what has caused you to get a subcontract in the first place. Because if those non-essential workers or the what we like to call what is not in your business area, activities like housekeeping, parts of the supply chain, which may not be your area, core area of business, you vendor them out. Because if these people were on your payroll, the cost to company would be maybe double than what it is once you vendor it out. But by vendoring it out, 
have you not affected the way of working of those people? Because they are not getting the same facilities as you are giving your employees. I'm from India. So in India, as an organization, my company can give the best of medical treatment for my employees. But my subcontractor who is supplying me contract labor would not even have a simple medical insurance for his employees. So am I ESG compliant as an organization? Maybe. But when my vendor is not ESG compliant, I am not ESG compliant. Right, you're affected by, by your supplier, but what are the solutions? Someone say this to me once, just because you have moved the point of pollution out of sight doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. So the pain points are still there. It's my greed which has forced me to get a subcontractor. I'm not against globalization. I mean, I'm not against subcontracting if it's done for the right reasons. If your subcontracting is done only to save money, then that's not the right reason. If your subcontractors have the same way of life as your employees do, then it's fine. Otherwise, by doing that, you're not ESG compliant. Because somewhere, this tailspin, because if I, let's say, I cut corners when I employ a subcontractor, because the law allows me to do it. The person who would have been earning, let's say, X, if he worked for me, is now earning 0.6X because he's working for a subcontractor. His purchasing power has come down by that much. So the overall impact on the economy is going to shrink by an equivalent amount. And when this happens on a very large scale, you will find that the ills which are existing in the world today will become manifest. Extreme poverty is a direct fallout of this. Because what is happening is that the money is getting extremely skewed in its distribution. I mean, we always keep hearing about the 80-20 principle. Why can we not flatten that curve? I'm not talking about a socialistic society. We, we need to make money. Because without money, the whole industry would stop. Every single activity would stop if there was no profit motive involved. But the greed motive should not be involved. Mm -hmm. Say I'm taking the external services of transcripting these exact interviews for the podcast into text, and I'm also buying the service of editing the audios. I am doing it to buy myself time. I can do all of that by myself, but I'm choosing to pay the other person to, to do this for me. In which category does it fall? But I don't know anything about that person's medical insurance. And anyway, I'm just a person, not a company yet. <laughs> yes, but the point is that the organization which is offering this service to you, if it is individual to individual, then it may not be so rigid because then it's a matter of choice. As long as there is a fair, a fair wage, which is happening, but here we are talking corporations. We're talking multi-billion dollar, maybe trillion dollar corporations, which are doing this. And that's where the problem is. I mean, the 
arguments that you hear sometimes are so, so I would say, uh, belittling to the subcontracted persons that you wonder whether there is really any respect for those people. It's, it's, it's exploitative, actually. As you said, you can do it. You can do the editing, you can do the transcription, you can put it out in text, you can put it out in, uh, in a podcast, but you can use your time better. And as long as you're not exploiting someone else in doing these tasks, then that's fine. But if you have the time, I mean, you have nothing better to do, and yet you will do this just to make some money, then that's not ethical just because I can increase my profit by 1%, then somewhere it doesn't sound right. right. I'm reducing my employee costs by 40%, so I can add 2% to my bottom line. And these people can live, tend to a house, you know, like in a box of sardines, and I couldn't care less as long as I live in my comfortable house. Then that doesn't sound right somewhere. Mm -hmm. The example you gave of McDonald's in Denmark versus McDonald's in, say, India or Ukraine or anywhere else, the answer to that is local legislation. Northern European countries are known for their strong uh, civil rights and constitutional rights and place in this uh, paid vacations, paternal, maternal leaves onto the um, pedestal. Do you think probably the principles can have a chance one day to be integrated on a legal level? We should. Because can you honestly tell me that the value of a human life in Europe is higher than the value of a human life in Asia or in Africa? No, it should be the same. Right. You're talking about quality globally, and I totally agree. Yes. So it's, it's only a matter of will. If tomorrow, let's not talk about McDonald's, I just gave the example. I don't want to point a finger at any single, because it, it's almost uh, like an ailment which afflicts most of the organizations in the world. It's your call. Are you okay with allowing one set of employees to live in a certain manner and allow another set of employees to live in another manner? That's where I say, when you say you are ESG compliant, I say no. When you say these are our SDGs, no, because they will never be achieved. So it's for these authorities which actually give these certifications to question the system. And if you, if you come in and say Corporation X is ESG compliant, then find out if it has these kinds of employee balance sheets. This is what I mean by an employee balance sheet. If it's a global corporation, does it have one set of rules for the whole world, for its entire corporation, or do they have individual HR manuals for individual countries? Then you're not following equity. You don't play by one set of rules. And by extension, you can also, if you really have the will, come out and put pressure on the government because if you are in a position to influence, and a lot of these big corporations are, 
because when they come in and they say we are bringing in so many jobs into this community and in exchange the government is giving you benefits can you not also put your foot down and say i want these 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 conditions to be done from the taxes that i'm going to pay you there is a will it calls for a will and that will unfortunately is missing in most of us i mean i include myself in it i mean it's nice most of the times i try to be correct but it's not possible to be 100% black or white my my mind is not yet tuned to look at things in black and white 100% of the time i can say 90% of the time i know i'm usually distinguishing between black and white but about 10% of the time i'm still walking on the gray and and it calls for a very strong personal moral law if we have to take a stand because this calls for taking a stand this calls for something a lot more fundamental than doing business you have to believe that all men i mean when i say men i mean all men and women are yeah. created equal if we believed in that we would not have problems of gender equality we would not have problems of poverty we would not have problems of exploitation we would not have problems of climate change because you would not be exploiting resources of one person to feed another person all this can be traced back to that so inherently we don't believe that all of us are equal it goes back to what george orwell wrote all are created equal but some are created more equal than others yeah and so you know that's ingrained in our psyche now and that is what is leading to these problems right if you were to outline the you know up to five principles which they would be which ones uh, you would include into your top five my principles may be different from the principles for others see as i said my personal moral line is different from your personal moral line or any other person's personal moral line but there are some which are i would say universal which people believe irrespective of who they are honesty honesty there, there cannot be something which says for me this is true but for you this is false it cannot be so the the universal truths exist so honesty is very important transparency trust um what else would be believing the good in you what i mean by that and how is that a little different from trust is when you come to work in the morning i would like to believe that you are not coming there with the intention of having a bad day that is what i mean by believing in the good in you trusting you is allowing you to come in believing that you've come there thinking that it's going to be a good day is believing in the good in you so that's a slight subtle difference there but so that's another thing which is important for me and the fifth and the most important one of the most important things is believing that there is good in everyone there may be a hundred negatives but look for the one positive in everyone and build on that one positive and soon the hundred negatives would disappear yeah uh, presuming the best in people so approaching everyone with the positive 
before discovering the whatever negative there might be. Do you think sustainable development goals are doing a good job? If we are going to follow the pattern that we have been following all along, I don't think it's going to happen. You can keep making targets and you can keep revising your targets because without principles, SDG has no meaning. You can keep putting out lists like Human Development Index, Global Democracy Index, Freedom of Press Index, Transparency Index. How does it help? You will put out all these lists. If I end up using those lists as toilet paper, I mean, what good is that list? There should be, until you find a way of enforcing those lists, you will not be able to achieve the SDG. I can always come and say, okay, my goal was 100% poverty alleviation, but I've achieved 60%. So what? What will you do to me? Excommunicate me? Go ahead. Make my day. You know, it's, it's like that. Until you hit them where it hurts. If you step in and say, if you don't achieve this metric by this day, we stop as a global community, stop doing business with you. Your people can't move out. You get isolated from the rest of the world. Can we do it? No, I don't see it happening. And if that doesn't happen, SDG will not happen. It sounds dictatorial, but if you have to do a lot of good to a lot of people, the way things are going today, with most of the world slipping below the poverty line, unless you take drastic measures, you're not going to be able to achieve it. I think that as a humanity, we were doing pretty well before the pandemic in alleviating poverty slowly and steadily. But now it's such a pushback with inflation and stopping everyone and everything. The, the pandemic itself was, was something which was due. I'm not surprised. If not in this way, it would have come in some other way. Because what has happened is, since the 1950s, that's when I can trace the root of the greed to the 1950s. Till that, I mean, just after World War II and when the economy started uh, expanding. Till then, we, we still had a lot of self-contained uh, countries and organizations. Global trade at that point in time was somewhere around 15% of the GDP, global GDP. Today, it's 50%. The goods which are destined for transportation, the goods which are destined for manufacturing, have gone up four times in that period. You see raw material moving back and forth between continents. I mean, I was speaking to the CEO of a European company. This was a few years back, four or five years back. And he was talking about the situation in the 1990s and early 2000s when he said it was cheaper for him to move raw material from Europe to China, get the semi-finished product back to Europe, complete the assembly, and put it out. What are you talking about? What is your supply chain? How much have you butchered the environment? All that back and forth movement of raw material. So this was due. It was supposed, I mean, if not as COVID-19, it would have come up as something else. 
Yeah, the system definitely needed a stressor and the stressor yes. team. And actually your example just reminded me on a more individual level, the traveling, how it was cheaper to buy two ways ticket and still use only one if you needed only one way. Yet it was cheaper to buy both ways, not go. And it's crazy. And just earlier today I had a conversation uh, about islands and climate adaptation and how it's easier and cheaper to go on Ryanair from the UK to Latin America or some islands around Caribbean basin. And within that basin, it's practically impossible or is it, either it's extremely expensive or yeah, you, you simply cannot do it. Yes. Crazy. Yeah. So, and, and that's what happens. See, when you follow cheap resources, whether it's uh, material or manpower or technology, and when you have this indiscriminate movement of goods and services, it is going to happen. Because what happens is, a certain area, I may have immunity to a certain infection because of conditions which exist in my area. But because of rampant back and forth transport, I become an, a part of the supply chain and I do not have the means of controlling this disease. Then it is going to come back. It will come back with the goods which I am transporting back. It could be plague, it could be, it could be anything. I mean, I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger specifically at this pandemic. The minute I compromise my supply chains, the minute the number of uh, stakeholders increase in my value chain, I am exposing myself to risks. I, I'm not advocating making everything under a single roof. No. But be responsible about who you are associating with. Not just because someone is cheaper, you don't get involved with someone. Right. I think countries are already starting to focus on a so-called donut economy. So producing in a circle around your own community. Say you need to build a house, take something from the five, 10 kilometers radius, the material should come as close as possible from around your area, produced and manufactured as close as possible to where you are. So I think this is the trend is picking up. Um, Pre-last question, how do you think the world theoretically is going to change post-pandemic? It's very difficult for me to predict because for the simple reason that I'm not a sociologist or an economist, I don't know, I don't have access to those models. If I were to gauge the world based on my quadruple bottom line, I would say that organizations and countries should start, I will not say will start, but should start listening to their stakeholder aspirations more. If you start doing that, in my estimate, we're going to go back to where we were maybe 30 years ago, where we would be looking at more within the continent. Europe, for example, would start looking more at sourcing from within Europe. These long supply chains are not sustainable and not viable. They will crash. I mean, they may not crash entirely, but my gut feeling is they should crash. We would go back to the levels of 15, 20, 25% of 
the global GDP will become the global trade, not what it is now. So a lot more of local involvement in the goods and services. Air travel, I, I see coming down significantly because one good thing which this pandemic has shown us is that it is possible with the way technology has developed for us to have meaningful interaction from the comfort of our living room. Exactly what is happening now. <laughs> exactly. I have had feedback from colleagues, from friends who have been told that at least for the rest of this year, let's experiment with this system. Let's see if we can make it work. And if it's going to become feasible, if I can even achieve 90% of my goals by not traveling, then it makes a strong case for why did I travel before? Good question. So uh, I see that happening. We will, we will go back to what it was in the 90s when we did not have so much global travel. And indirectly, that will also help in climate change. You don't need to mine oil as much as you were. You, know, you don't need to bring out the oil. It can live underground. You don't need coal. I mean, your renewables are going to go up. I see these changes coming up, coming into the system post the pandemic. They were already there, but they were sort of the low voice, whisper kind of ideas. Now they would become the loud noise kind of ideas. That is something which is going to become predominant, at least over the short term. Right. As we say here in Ukraine, your words to the God's ears. Hopefully yes. it's going to be the, really the case. Uh, probably one last question. One piece of advice you could give to the listeners. Maybe a book recommendation, maybe something to look at. What would you say to expand our horizons? I had a few things which I had uh, written down and uh, I would like to share those. One is, if you have not already done so, define your personal model. It's the need of the hour. Define your personal moral line. There is no right or wrong in this, believe me. Because you can start and society will correct it. Believe me. You cannot have on your personal moral line something which says killing people is fine. Because when you are deviant, you will be brought back into line. So start by making your personal moral line. Uh, start implementing whatever is on your personal moral. Be transparent in your dealings. That is very important. Respect people for people, not for what they do, but for what they are, for who they are. If something goes against the grain, just say no. And no means no. No does not mean maybe. No does not mean yes. No means no. I've heard this statement said a lot about man-woman relationship, especially where rape is concerned. No means no. I would like to extend that and say in every single transaction in your life, no means no. And learn to say no. No is not a bad word. 
it's a very strong word. And it calls for a lot of strength of character. There will be pain in the short term, but you will gain in the long run. This is what I would like to share. And this is what I have started applying. And I find that, yes, I have made a few enemies. People who didn't want to take my no, they were expecting favors. And I said no, because it didn't work to my sensibilities. But over a period of time, they've come back and they've realized that what I did was okay. So yes, you will gain in the long run. Totally agree. Totally share this thought. And from my observations, from what I noticed, I think it makes people in the long term, in the long run, makes people respect you more because you were able to stand your ground. You were able to be transparent about who you are, your strong moral code. And uh, it always works for the best for both parties or more parties if, if it's the case. It was very nice talking to you today. Thank you very much for sharing your views, for, for being here with me and the listeners. And I hope for the best for, for your career, for everything that is going on in life. And talk soon. Sure, Anna. It's been a pleasure. And if I can even influence one person through this dialogue which we have had, I will feel that I have done my good deed for today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Ciao, ciao. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions about the concept or anything that was mentioned today, do let me or Dr. Kumar Iyer know. You can reach out to both of us on LinkedIn. If you like the podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing on your social media, leaving a review and rating on a platform you're listening on. I would appreciate a lot if you rate us on our Podchaser page and leave a review there. I reply each and everyone personally. By taking your time to give your honest feedback, you help more people to find it out and you also help me to improve it, to make it better. I'd also like to use this opportunity to invite you to check more of our episodes out, uh, especially related to the topic we have discussed today. So, for example, my top four suggestions to expand on the topic would be Conscious Capitalism, Culture and Leadership with Johanna Lyman from NextGenOrgs. Uh, another one is Sustainable Finance with Lorena Mundos del Campo. Sustainable Business Models with Anna Itkin. And finally, ESG, Measuring Non-Financial Risks, interview with Andrew Gazal. Other than that, you are, of course, cordially invited to, to, to go into other episodes as well and to check what's, what might be interesting there. We have a lot of exciting interviews and guests covering a range of topics from bad sheets, flowers, business models, uh, to tourism, ecotourism, fashion, economy, and, and many, many more. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, challenge me with your questions, or suggest guests, maybe the next guest is you, or topics that you like me to, you'd like me to cover in the future. I would gladly accept uh, all and everything. This was Sustainability Explored, episode number 46 and me, your host, Anna Chashina. Thank you again for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, next Thursday, as always. 
Take care. Stay sustainable. Bye-bye.